0: Hi fam! Happy Friday! Did you know that today is the last Friday in February? And yes, it is a leap year, so we have that extra day, but next week, next Friday, when we meet for our family time, it'll officially be March. And I gotta say, I'm here for it. I am ready for the spring weather, y'all. It's cold out here in the Midwest, but today I am feeling the warmth from my home away from home because I get to chat with my California friend, Sarah. D. Lee, L. C. S. W. And I can't wait to introduce her to you, fam. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All righty. I am so happy to be back with y'all because today is a good day for a great day. Oh, I love that quote. And you know, I've seen it made into lovely home decor, inspirational posters. I feel like I've seen it on Fixer Upper at least a couple of times and the like. And it was a quote made famous by American print and broadcast journalist, Germany Kent. The message is simple and poignant and beautiful. And it got me to thinking about a myriad of quotes that I feel like can speak to us fans, that can empower and validate the journey we experience within OCD. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to dedicate a bit of time to sharing a few more quotes. The late, great Maya Angelou has a treasure trove of amazingness, so it's hard to pick just one or two, but this one really struck me, and it reads, quote, You may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them, end quote. I mean... Sarah and I are going to chat about how you can't control a lot of things when it comes to OCD, even if OCD wants you to believe that you can. But the power in treatment is we can all make shifts that are within our control. Our posture, our ability to live fully and coexist with our brain braining, even when OCD's in the picture, fam. Another really wonderful quote from Miss Maya reads You alone are enough. You have nothing to prove to anybody. I mean, I love this too. We say this a lot here, family. You are not alone. And while that is so, so true, I love the addition and the reminder that you alone are enough. Often our OCD warriors feel like they have to prove something to OCD or else something terrible might happen. Often as family members, we feel like we have to prove that the distress they feel or that we feel in seeing them suffer needs to be fixed now, yesterday. And as Sarah and I will chat about today, we are a family that can sit with big feelings. Note the sit with fam. Not avoid, not obliterate, not shove down or stuff. Sit. Big feelings are hard, overwhelming, and distressing, but we are enough. We don't have to prove ourselves to OCD. And Sarah and I will also chat about how our loved ones' struggles may even reflect or rub up against our own value systems, our own beliefs. So stay tuned, fam, because we're going to discuss that and more. Now, poet laureate Amanda Gorman writes in her book, Call Us What We Carry, quote, For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it, end quote. I mean, confronting OCD, whether you're the person with the lived experience or the family member confronted with all the ways OCD tries to rob and hijack your relationships, your value-driven living, it takes courage. It takes bravery. It takes being present in that, not just seeing it, but being it. And that's no small ask, fam. But it reminds me of another line from Amanda's book, reading, quote, Only when we're drowning do we understand how fierce our feet can kick end quote. And I love that too, because it's true. We might be exhausted. We might be burnout. We might be feeling utterly weakened and weary. But when it comes to staying afloat, fighting for that next breath, it is amazing how our strength can renew from deep, deep within us, fighting this fight evermore. So I love how all these really powerful, amazing collection of inspiring quotes can speak to us, fam. But also, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, that all of these amazing quotes shared from Kent, Angelou, and Gorman are from Black women. And as February is Black History Month, I want to honor and celebrate Black greatness and Black joy, because if we were to re-listen or reread any of those quotes we just talked about through a cultural lens, and hopefully we can appreciate that the struggles, courage, and strength extend far beyond the OCD family community or anyone else that's connecting with the inspiration or experiencing visibility through their own struggles. But we can see, honor, and validate the difficult long road and strength that our Black fam have experienced, survived, and thrived through. So I'm not black, spoiler alert if you didn't know, but I am here for loving on, validating, and celebrating black joy. And guess what? Sometimes that might stir or fluff up a few folks. And while I can only speak for myself, I do have some ideas on why. For some, it may be a I don't see color kind of deal. Why do we have to separate out or highlight and individuate based on color? We love all people, Black people included. And while, again, I can only speak for myself, it's because color does exist. And while no one deserves to be treated preferentially or mistreated based on the color of their skin, it doesn't mean that we should not see color. Because the world, fam, it's colorful. Because this family, the OCD family community, it's colorful. And while I can imagine not seeing color is an attempt to say, I'm not going to prejudice because of skin color, it also doesn't celebrate it either. And there is no shame in black, brown, tan, olive, light, or dark skin tones, just to name a few. But if we don't see color, then we miss out on the beauty, the strength, and the validity of our greatness. When an artist completes a tapestry, we appreciate what? Their use of color. Each pigmentation has its value, its depth, and it breathes life into this composition. And so this white girl, she sees color, and it's beautiful. And that includes my color and yours, fam. So thank you for taking some time and investing in the full picture with me. A colorful, beautiful creation that isn't without its messiness, it isn't without its bleeds, but is a work in progress. So with that preface, I am excited to welcome my new friend Sarah D. Lee, LCSW, to the family table. We have such a rich and beautiful discussion, and we can probably relate to each other more than we care, (laughs) especially when it comes to having lived experience of OCD and traffic on the 405 freeway in LA, if you know, you know. But we are also both therapists and moms too, and Sarah is doing such powerful work in our OCD community. Sarah is also Black, and as I told Sarah when I invited her to join us here, fam, having her on, and during Black History Month, it's not about meeting a quota or checking a box for me. She's not my first Black guest, and she won't be my last, but she's here with us today because she's a great therapist and a brave OCD warrior. She's here to serve up some hope and courage for the fam, and we get to celebrate her color because she's an important, beautiful, and celebrated part of our tapestry fam. And so let me tell you a bit more about her, and then I promise I'll hush up so that we can get to our chat together, because we're ready to spill some tea when it comes to OCD in the family. So Sarah of Soul Spa Psychotherapy is an OCD and trauma specialist. She studied psychology at Pomona College, earned her MSW at UCLA, and is a former Fulbright grant winner. Sarah treats children and adult clients from California, Illinois, and internationally. And Sarah, I bet you're glad you're not in Illinois right now because, girlfriend, it is cold. <laughs> I'm cold. The Midwest is cold. We're ready for spring. Sarah is also a clinical supervisor with no CD, which provides OCD treatment in most states and in a few different countries. So I'm going to have all the links and goodies on where you can learn more about Sarah and the amazing work she is doing over at this episode's blog at OCDFamilyPodcast.com, as well as any other resource and citations that show up in this episode. Lastly, I want to provide a brief trigger warning for our time together today. We're going to be talking about some themes such as harm OCD themes that can show up, for example, in like new parents and other themes that can pop up for folks with lived experience of OCD. And while we don't go into great detail, OCD is intrusive, right? Like, ooh, doesn't feel good. But call it my hyper responsibility, y'all. I just want to provide you with the informed consent that we will be talking about some of those themes. So just a heads up on that. And now let's get to this great chat because I can't wait to introduce Sarah to you. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. I am so excited today because a new friend, Sarah Lee. thank you for being here today. I've enjoyed getting to know
1: you. And so thank you so much for spending time with the fam. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's really great to chat with you. Good to know you, meet the fam. Hey, fam. <laughs> hey.
0: Yes. Yes. So I am, I'm really excited to have you here today. And we both have had the privilege of working with the lived experience OCD community. And I was talking with Sarah before we started recording just about how I didn't know much about OCD. And I've been really interested, especially as of late, talking with the colleagues, with the fam, with friends here of how we got into the space of treating OCD. So first, if you wouldn't mind, Sarah, I would love to hear about how did you get into treating OCD and learning more about this wild monster of a disorder and bringing hope to the community suffering from this?
1: Well, it's actually really interesting. I got a message on LinkedIn saying, hey, would you like to learn how to treat OCD? And I said, actually, yes, I would. That sounds very interesting. At the time, I knew that a lot of therapists didn't know much about OCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know much in school. So I'm very much a go-getter. I'm a nerd. I care a lot about doing things well and and being able to solve unique problems? I was like, yes, absolutely. I'd love to do it. So shout out to NoCD. It was an OCD who reached out to me. Oh, I love that. No, no, it's cool. They're super cool. Like they had this mission of saying, hey, not enough therapists know about this. People shouldn't have to suffer. We want to make more OCD specialists. We want to be at the vanguard of pushing these conversations out into the mainstream. And I was a part of their virtual OCD treatment revolution, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not just being dramatic. I don't think So I said yes, and I got into training. It was all very cool, very amazing, very thorough. Uh And while I was sitting in the training, I just started having this really intense sense of like panic and shame like come over. I mean, I remember the sensation coming up through my toes, through my body, like this like emotional rigor mortis. Like I realized, oh, my God, you mean to tell me that this whole time, this stuff I've been dealing with is OCD? Yeah. And I'm sitting in there like answering all the questions and I'm like pulling it in. You know, I took to it like water and I'm feeling all this intense shame because I'm like the reason I'm taking to this like water is because I know exactly what this is. I've lived like this. And there was something really scary about how serendipitous this organization coming to me and, you know, bringing me in to be a professional to treat this. While at the same time, I'm having this realization that I have been living with this without having any formal treatment, just getting through it.
0: Right. Yeah. Can I ask how long were you a therapist or I know you're a clinical supervisor as well? How long were you treating before it came to your awareness? Like, oh, this, all this that can package this way or that way, like it's OCD and I
1: I, I can relate too much. <laughs> well, it was, it was actually immediately upon the training that I realized it was me. Yeah. And so right away I got started. Uh, there was a delay between Uh, my training and, you know, taking the tests and passing all of that portion and all of the rigorous process between that and actually seeing my first client, there was a time that passed. And once I found out about ERP and everything, I was just doing it to myself as much as possible. So I I, will, we might talk about this later. I had already had means of managing my thoughts and I'd gotten them mostly settled and centered, you know, by some things that I had created for myself. But once I learned ERP, I was going all in. I was leaning all the way into all of these spheres, you know, just as a means of getting to understand how this ERP thing works on me. So then I can confidently, from a place of both training and experience, walk my clients through the process.
0: Yeah. Wow. What a story. You know, what's interesting is, so I worked in the field for 20 years before I, so I thought, Met someone that had OCD and was like, "Mm, I don't know how to treat this. And so I had mentioned to the client, like, I really feel an ethical responsibility because just my initial kind of research was like, okay, I see this thing called ERP, which, fam, if you're new to us, ERP, there's lots of acronyms, lots of letters, lots of alphabet soup going on. Over here in the treatment field. So that stands for exposure and response prevention. But I was like, I don't know how to do that. And so I told the client, I really feel a responsibility to get you with somebody that knows how to do this. And it's not something I'm aware of. And so I want to make sure you're getting the right kind of treatment. And they were like, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. The pandemic has hit. There are waiting lists. That are miles long. I don't care if you know how to treat it. I I got in, right? I have access. Do not let Mm -hmm. go of me, please. And so on one condition, I was like, okay, fine. Listen, here's the deal. We're going to try and learn it together. But I'm learning. And if I feel like I'm not getting it, you deserve better than that. So we'll revisit this idea of referral. But through that process, I ended up getting nominated from OCD Midwest. I don't even know how they knew I was treating OCD at this point, but nominated to go learn more because they're like, guess what? Not only do we not have enough OCD therapists, but the Midwest is severely lacking. We need more. And so Patrick McGrath, who's now the chief clinical officer there at OCD. He was just passing on his presidency onto Gabrielle Fagella, who was also on my podcast last year. Patrick was my premiere episode for this season. And I ended up getting trained. But I was at the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute sitting Mm -hmm. there, have had anxiety my whole life. And I had a very similar experience where I was like, well, I will be darned. I am dealing with OCD. Yeah. This is OCD. How did I miss that? I mean, I missed it everywhere else because once I knew what OCD was, I was like, "Mm, that wasn't my first client with a This is the first one I noticed, right? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it was this really strange thing, but I did the same thing. I leaned in so hard. I used to have a lot of car anxiety. It's not that it never sneaks up on me, but I got even the trip home from that conference. The training was in Chicago. I had flown. And I was driving home, feeling some anxiety. It was dark. It was raining. I used to have all these different safety precautions slash compulsions mm-hmm. that I would do in the car. And I was like, so what's the intrusive fear underneath this? What's the core fear? OK, I'm just going to play all what I just learned in this intensive. And I was like, I don't know. Do I think like I'm going to die? I don't think I've ever thought that I'm going to die. But what is the core fear? Mm-hmm. Like if we reduce it down to a nice little fear reduction sauce, would it be fear of death? Maybe. I'm just going to try it. And so the whole ride home, it was only like a 20 minute ride, but the whole ride home, I was like, I'm going to die. 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 And that's too bad because, you know, then I won't get to see my daughter get married. I won't get to see my sons grow up and do all this. But, but you know, oh, I guess this is how I go. I also don't have to uh, load the dishwasher anymore. And I'm kind of not mad at that. And so I, I totally went into full ERP there in the car. it.
1: And the anxiety drained. And that's the miracle of it you know? Right. When you start to do that, and I I, I, I call that, it's like an emotional trust fall. Oh, yeah. It is. Okay. One of my funny ones, I'll say, is there's this movie. What's it called? Oh, man. <laughs> the movie is called, it's the guy with the hook. He's a black oh, guy. Candyman. Yes. There it is. Okay. candy. I had to sit there, and it took about three months into treating other people that I learned I had to come to this realization, like the fact that you won't say Candyman man at all, like this is your own belief that you can control these supernatural, like that this that this can happen, that you have control over this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Go in the mirror and let's face. It. My God, that was like the worst day of all the exposures I did for myself. So <laughs> scary, yeah, worst. And this movie that somebody just, Owen oh, five big, whatever his name is, like he just made this thing that's been ruling my childhood. I had other things that I wasn't supposed to say. So I wouldn't die. So my father wouldn't die. Like it was a part of my OCD cycle. And mm-hmm. this was one of them. Mm-hmm. I went and I said it in the bathroom. And even thinking about it right now, it's like, oh, I said it. And then I sat there and I just I envisioned the whole thing, the bees, the hook, all these things. And then, oh, God, it was so painful. ERP is not fun. It's, it's not, not at all. Oh, my God. But what is fun is afterwards, when you've realized freedom. the freedom, when you, when you realize you can't summon a metaphysical entity yeah. with his bees, when you realize that, that you were believing that you had this power to control the whole world, that part, the part where, you know, because sometimes a feared outcome does happen. I mean, we, we are not perfectly safe in this world. We just aren't. And I try to stay away from that word and that concept generally, mm-hmm. because we don't, live in a perfectly safe world no one can give that to you that's you know? true yeah but what i can give myself is the experience of going up and down on my own emotional roller coaster and really realizing i don't have to be afraid of that
0: yes yes the freedom in that thoughts are just thoughts that thoughts don't equal actions thoughts don't equal behaviors and it seems so counterintuitive like when when people are first really dealing with intrusive obsessional thoughts right like what they do to try and counteract that distress is usually pretty intuitive you start off pretty honestly right and it builds and layers from there it's like if you thought something bad could happen to your dad would you provoke that intentionally no
1: oh of course you want
0: to protect him right like you were (laughs) like i don't want anything happening to my dad Right. We're like, you know, some, some of the fans, like, I don't know. I'm kind of mad at him right now. <laughs> but
1: for I, I, the most
0: part, we don't want anything bad to happen. And so you come by these, a lot of times I will sub the word safety behaviors. You come by these safety behaviors, honestly, because you're I literally know. just trying to protect the situation from the big bad thing that could
1: possibly happen. Right. And that's the other side of it is once you realize they're safety behaviors and that it's OCD and that these are obsessions, compulsions. Then there's that shame piece that I talked about going through. And it's been a long time. And I even remember, you know, CD saying, hey, look, if you have lived experience or, you know, just if you have expertise or whatever, you know, we'd like to hear from you. And I like hit in the corner emotionally. I was like, no, because other people had been diagnosed and treated, whereas I just have problems. I'm just mm-hmm. weak. I'm just messed up, you know. And the shame of living with this experience that we all know now is is a thing, is a label, is a... And it's still stigmatized in plenty of places, you know? Oh, for sure. Uh, so the other part that I like about treatment, this is a part of good OCD treatment, is the part where we accept that like everybody has intrusive thought from time to time, has <laughs> anxieties. And you know what? Your OCD, my OCD, this thought process is trying to help. It's trying to bring you into like the promised land. It's trying to get you to a place of safety. And you love yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, your mother loves you. Mm -hmm. Trying to make sure that your father never passes away. It's trying to make sure that you're not murdered by Candyman. It's trying to make sure that you don't accidentally get the most vicious disease ever just by taking your shoe off one time, one time in Mm -hmm. a gym.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And helping people develop compassion for that part. Most of us, for the most part, most people, develop OCD symptoms in childhood for the most part. And it's a little kid in a world, children, what power do they have in this entire world? You know, they really are 100% dependent on other people. And oh, I'm going to cry. And these little people are confronting a world full of uncertainty that even the adults are having trouble with. And maybe something traumatic happens. In my case, my mom couldn't live with us anymore. So my mom had to leave us And that's incredibly overwhelming for a little child. And back in the 80s, nobody knew about therapy. They just said, go to school. You'll Mm -hmm. be fine. And this part of the brain was like, shh, got you. Don't worry. Don't worry. All we got to do is always make sure all the lights are flicked off. Always make sure that everything is perfectly even. Never say these terrible statements. And you know what? You're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm hmm there's a lot of space to have compassion and love for that part that was just trying to take care of you. Yeah, okay. I love that reframe. And really, you
0: were trying to survive a really scary circumstance. And to think that through all of this, your body going into fight, fight or freeze, your brain was brain. And I say this all the time, your brain was braining, right? So it's not about fall but we have the neurochemistry that we have we're flowing in that and you were trying to make choices that were going to be protective of you of loved ones of different things like that so you know i will often have especially when i have new clients coming in they'll be like what did i do wrong that got me here and i'm like what did you do wrong you had a lot of empathy for other people and you were trying to survive that and protect yourself Mm -hmm. and others Mm -hmm. i mean like why are you such a caring person? And they're like, What? And it's like Never. you're you're kind of awesome. You kind of a big deal. Aren't you? But it but you're right. That feeling of shame does really swell initially. And it's part of the power of being able to go into treatment where you can realize, oh, there's no shame in me trying to do my best. And it's really oh. accepting that you were trying to do your best and you know what it wasn't serving you in the best way but not because Uh, you did something wrong but because we can't know what we don't know and so being able to come into a space where someone can be like hey I've got to read on this, and I've got the rap sheet on this monster that is OCD, and there's hope. It's incredible, but you would never think it comes at. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. And now it feels so mad. Or staring exactly. in the mirror and saying, "Can't you?" Like you would be like, "No, that's
1: the last thing in the world." A opposite. It's the last thing you would think of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's, it, it, it's 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 wild. it
1: is wild. I don't know.
0: Too I heard about inference based CBT. It's been emerging more here in the U.S but has been known more internationally. And so it's starting to really gain traction because there is an evidence base. there's almost a hundred different research than all the things over the last 30 years. But what I really like about inference-based CBT, in addition to ERP, I like them both. I like that we have choices. I like that it's not like one thing. And if you can't do ERP, too bad. Because some people are listening, my family, you're like, some people are, joining us and they're like we have been in this fight so we totally got Rena on like doing the Candyman thing in the mirror other people are like i could never do that i can't do that i can't i'm sorry we're gonna stop i'm just gonna live here and not have to ever do that and so what's nice about inference-based cbt is it's a non-exposure option but one of the things i really like about how it's conceptualized is we talk about this ocd bubble and the ocd bubble An OCD story has the promise of if you just do this, it'll be okay, And it made me think so much of what you were describing in that self-preservation and preservation of others trying to really protect others. And so what we learned, though, is the bubble is what's isolating us from living in our reality right now. But, you know, we can't know what we didn't know. And it's so understandable how we got absorbed into this bubble in the first place and how it felt like this is my protective armor. But it was keeping yeah. me from really being able to connect to what was happening here and now because I was terrified. And understandably so. These are not, I tell people all the time, the interests of thoughts, like mm-hmm. everybody, like you said, everybody gets them um, uh, or inferences of doubt, obsessional doubt in ICBT terms. They're mm-hmm. not like the drinking out of a pineapple on the beach thoughts. They're like, somebody could oh die God. thoughts, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I could take more of the, the pineapple on the beach. I will do that. Mm. But these are scary thoughts. So it's not like, oh, yeah, no, no big deal. It's these are really, really scary circumstances. So I think even realizing OCD is in the picture, I don't know how you feel about it now, but for me, I'm like, what a gift that I was able to understand, oh, it's this because I never thought life on the other side of OCD, having worked through and, and toward recovery. I never knew life could
1: be as free as this. I thought the same exact thing. I was thinking as free. Yeah. Yeah. What I tell my clients, my children and my adult children, right? Through people who get down like this, you know, this is a superpower. OCD itself is very difficult to live with, incredibly difficult to live with. But if you are able to access treatment, and so I use ERP and you go through ERP, you're going to discover that you have the power to sit with your own scary thoughts and feelings. And your brain knows your own worst nightmares better than anything anyone else. Like Jordan Peele could never. (laughs) For a movie, like the one that you can make for yourself. Oh, so true. And if you can sit with your own scary thoughts and feelings and learn to just coexist with them and realize that you don't have to be scared of your own fear. Yeah, You can navigate life in a way that the vast majority of people cannot. You now have a skill set that most people do not have. Right. I totally
0: agree. Yeah, I think often societally people confuse and misunderstand what OCD is as more of a preference, right? I like things packed concisely. I like things neat, right? And that's not what OCD is. OCD is having these sticky, intrusive, repeating thoughts and these obsessional doubts. And the reason why compulsions come into play is because, again, it's so scary that you're trying to survive and trying to prevent bad outcomes, trying to ensure safety for yourself, for others. Think of something like hitting run OCD. Did I hit somebody? Oh, my gosh. I, maybe I'm not even going to drive anymore because I don't want to risk. If I had that thought, and that, could that mean that I'm capable of this? Well, I don't want to put anybody in harm's way. It's not organizing your groceries to fit like a Tetris board, right? You know, that's yeah. a preference. I like my groceries that way. But OCD, if it had to do with those groceries, if I don't do this a certain way, harm could come. Something bad could happen. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're describing there. But or you will
1: feel wrong forever. Yeah. I'll feel or I'll be stuck in this emotion. I'll feel um, wrong.
0: Yes, it'll be off. It won't be able, I won't be able to relax from this. Absolutely. And then you go, well, the beauty in treatment is not that you never have intrusive thoughts again because your brain's going to break, right? But at the same time, like you said, having that freedom to be like, you know what? I can sit, I can embrace even that no matter what I'm feeling, that doesn't mean anything more than I'm feeling that I can hold that. And we just got through a couple weeks ago with the Super Bowl. People are paying millions of dollars for ads that can solve your problem. If you just have this, if you just do that, if you just can resolve this uncertainty, this is a societal problem with uncertainty where we're like, Ugh. And as an OCD sufferer, I agree that one of the silver linings, and though I would never wish OCD on anyone to get there, but one of the silver linings is, actually, I don't have to do anything with that. Mm -hmm. Trying to do something with that is actually what strengthens it. I can just, I can deal, I can live, and I can do my value-driven life. And so that is a superpower. Because people pay millions of dollars to try and offer you something that might fix it, if Mm -hmm. just, dot, dot right? And so that is amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to transition this conversation as we're talking about the fam, right? Right fam? Because we have a mixture of loved ones, chosen family, really that meet every week and we get to have these really awesome discussions. And so I want to draw this towards the support person, that partner, that family member. And we're going to start with this idea of what do we do when the support person, the partner, the family member is getting triggered. But I also want to add a layer to this, if it's okay. I want to add a layer to this because I want to also recognize, and you know me, fam. If, if you're a return fam, they're like, oh my gosh, yes, we do. We know you. <laughs> like I'm passionate about different things. If you're a new fam, I really have a heart for having this conversation and really understanding that as much as OCD affects everybody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't discriminate because if you got a brain, you know what? You're going to deal with mental health. You're going to deal with physical health. You're going to deal with these different things, right? But there isn't always equal access. There isn't always even research bases and trust within the medical community or the healthcare community. And it hasn't been fair and equitable. For all people, even though all people suffer from this, from little children to elder adults. And so I like to have this conversation, but I also want to honor and look at this within the context that this looks different and how we handle problems and how we can access support or if it's even safe to try and access support can look different across communities of color. They can look different across different identities, sexual orientation, gender. And I know, fam, some of y'all are gonna be like, do we have to make it about this? Yeah, guess what? I'm making it about this because I'm not gonna leave anyone out. And so if you're like, gosh, I feel like this is kind of getting to a space, I'm gonna encourage you, fam, to stick with that discomfort. We're sticking with discomfort. It's just Candyman in the mirror. I'm dying in a car. Stick with the it's- discomfort. And I cling to that superpower and please stick with us for the discussion because I'm not here to change your mind. You don't have to agree with me, but I do want to have this conversation because it's so important. So we're going to talk about what do we do when a support person, partner, family member is triggered in experiencing OCD in the system. But I also want to look at this specifically, especially as we're here in Black History Month, and I want to honor Black voices, the community, the family. Before we start recording, we're talking about all sorts of family drama and culture and things, right? You know, because we're also therapists. We're not just OCD therapists. We're therapists, and a lot happens within the family. But there's a lot of identity that comes around full circle from the larger society and the intergenerational issues and problems that we've had to deal with, as well well as some growth. It's not been all bad, but it's not been all good. And so want to talk about that and would love to just start with what do we do in a family when OCD, and we may not, we very well may not know that that's OCD, but mental health in general is happening and the effect that has within the family system for the support people around that suffer, for the person that is suffering. What do we do with that? What do we do when we're triggered? If we can start there, no big deal, right? (laughs) we can start there. (laughs) I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: So I'm going to start at the end where I'd like for people to end up at. Yeah. I talk about ERP becoming a part of the family culture, Mm -hmm. becoming a way of life. Yeah. For some people, there's a lot of stress around saying that this is your OCD. This is OCD. That's OCD. You can feel very, it just doesn't feel good in a family system to constantly point out this, you know, and that can create tension between parent and child and, and partners and, and siblings and things like that. So while that work has to be done at the beginning, ultimately, what we want to get to from my view is it really doesn't matter if it's OCD or not, but in this family, what we do is we sit with big feelings. Yeah. That's it. because I love you and because I love each part of you, if you're here having a big reaction, because I'm asking you to touch this handle. Rather than wanting to fix you or change you in some way, mm-hmm. giving you this this experience that you're wrong for this feeling. I'm just going to try to plan into my day to stand here for a while and just look at you and say, yeah, I can see that this is something that you're having a hard time with. Mm-hmm. And, and that just be it. To letting the family system hold this person as they hold their own feeling. Right. Yeah. And you, well, except for myself as a parent, mm-hmm. for you, the parent, <laughs> for That's hard. Yeah, It's incredibly hard because you just want to go to work. You just wanting to do the next thing. You just want to get them to school on time. You just want to live life. And this thing is in the wind if only you could fix it. Because there's this feeling that this reflects on you as a parent. That you're doing something wrong. That you're not good enough as a partner. That triggers within us our shame stories. Or you, the listener, the family right. member. Right. It sh- triggers your own shame stories. You know, if, if someone has a thing around mess in the house and things being dirty... And now in the ERP, the therapist says you have to leave it there. that reflects upon you as a housekeeper. As a, Unfortunately enough, it's very gendered. Like as a woman, culturally, I'm supposed to keep a clean house. How can I leave that mess there? Mm-hmm. So whether it's the ERP or the OCD side of things, you noticing when you are having a big feeling where your set score is going up and while your loved one is sitting there and you're very distressed and you're having them sit with it, you are also recognizing I want to do the compulsion with this person so badly. I just want to reassure them. I just want to open the door for them. I just want to make this go away so badly. It's at like an eight. My feet are hot. Yeah. Tense. My brain is just like all this judgment about myself and what this person should or shouldn't do. And I'm just going to sit with that too. Yeah. Because that's a part of showing myself love. Right. And that's what we do in this family.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. I'm all about the self love. So that's beautiful. But what's interesting <laughs> is so last week was Valentine's. And one of the things I prompted the family here to do was to do an act of self love for ourselves. Cause I think sometimes it's so easy to focus our love and support and our intentions can be beautiful, but sometimes it can feel like, oh my gosh, you're hovering, on me, you're harping on me, you're nitpicking me, right? From the family member standpoint. But really, I think most of the time, Folks are driven out of love, but one of the hardest people it is to love sometimes is ourselves, And we feel yeah. guilty. We look at our family member and we're like, they're hurting so much. Am I going to sit there and take this moment for me and be like, I'm going to go take care of myself, though? But it is so what? important to have love for yourself. And it's one of the hardest people. I mean, we're usually our worst critics, right? Our own what? worst critics. We, it's, a, it's a phrase for a reason. And we can feel selfish taking that when our other person, when our loved one our partner is so distressed. And you're right, there is so much empathy, which actually just even moves us into really understanding empathy, not only for the sufferer and in the empathy ERP process, but also empathy of going like, yeah, it's hard for me to watch you hurt. Like, it's so painful. So we were talking before, we're both moms. One of the most painful things is to see your child in pain and feel like you can't fix it, right? But at the same time, one of the most important things to remember, family, is we can still love on our person even if we can't fix the pain. Wish Absolutely. we could. Wish we could. But often, especially when it comes to OCD, that reassurance, that fix the pain, the little thing, oh, they're just nervous about opening the door. I'll open the door for them. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Becomes this big deal because OCD is robbing that love that you're trying to give to your loved yeah. one and saying, nope, that's I need that and more or else. I need that and more or else. So that's really hard. And when we talk about then dealing with and part of the reason this community even exists, we're dealing with it in the family. We deal with OCD in the context of relationships. It can't not affect relationships. Absolutely. Right. So as we think about that and we start thinking, I know that you were sharing with me before about empathy, ERP and really modeling that acceptance. Of being Mm -hmm. able to hold those big feelings, those uncomfortable unwanted feelings. And so can we talk more about that? When we're thinking about empathy ERP, what does that mean?
1: You know, my heart is tingling with excitement at this. I think that, so you mentioned a moment ago how hard it is to see your child hurting Mm -hmm. and to not be doing anything and just want to get in there and fix it. And if you can't fix it, I think for many of us, there's this, I don't know, this impetuous this this urge to just either totally turn away and ignore it if we can't fix it. Mm -hmm. or to get in there and start doing things we want to do something or we want it totally out of our awareness you know we think about the little kid in the store throwing a tantrum Mm -hmm. all on the yes (laughs) and we all have we all do it have a little bit of judgment yeah like put that child away yeah. Also, or that the parent is, is doing something wrong or, you know, we're all afraid of those moments. But it takes time. It takes practice. But getting to a place where you can look at that tantruming child on the floor. And it, again, this is it. I, I am here. So it takes time and it, you have to like re-up and yeah. any yourself to get back there. Where you can get to, I'm so lucky and I'm so fortunate that you trust me enough with these big feelings to show them to me. Yeah. Right now, this is proof of love that I can witness you being this hurt, this sad. There's also times where my daughter was like physically hurt. And I just got, I had the privilege of holding this human being in this time. Privilege. And so when thinking about ERP as a way of life, thinking about emotional acceptance as, in my view, one of the highest forms of love and also one of the highest forms of self-love. So if I'm sitting here and I'm also having a hard time, and you're having a hard time. And I'm honest, look, I'm having a hard time, too. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit with these feelings, too. And they just watch you sit on the floor, close your eyes and just sit with it. If they can watch you do that, even not even just as a parent, even your adult partner also, you know, if they can watch you do it and watch you show yourself that empathy that you're, whoa, I'm having big feelings here on the inside. And so I'm going to take time and I'm going to acknowledge and be with those feelings. That changes the game, because typically what's modeled to us is that thing that you mentioned earlier. I'm not feeling good. I'm going to go buy something. I'm not feeling good. I'm going to go eat something. I'm not feeling good. I'm going to go exercise Not a bad thing, you know, but often enough people use it as a form of avoidance in trying to cut out or fix feelings. Mm -hmm. And all for all the good things that you want to do for yourself, as long as you're not doing them to avoid your humanity, your human feelings. Right. This range, I call it like night of the round table. You got shame. You got embarrassment. You got anger. You got frustration. You got joy. You got sadness. You got laughter. You have like all of these different emotions and all the round table. All the nights have to be present for it to work. You have to be willing to accept every part of yourself. And no, it is not fun to accept the fact that as a 36-year-old woman, you're afraid to say Candyman in the mirror because someone's going to come out and get you. <laughs> it's, it's not fun to accept that that's a part of my brain. It's also not fun to accept the the real fear that I had at confronting that thing that came into my brain as a child and I kind of just didn't confront it. But how beautiful and how loving that I took the time to go take care of that part of myself. Yes. And you deserve that. Yeah. I do. And listeners, you guys do too. Yes. Yes. I'm here for this. Yes. A <laughs> Valentine's Day exposure, right? Like yeah. this idea that, okay, on this day. And you know what? I probably did do that. I had a little bit of a hard day on Valentine's Day. And I had a thing I had to do. And as a result, I was like, you know what? Nobody should make me feel the warm and fuzzy that that's not what I'm feeling today. What a What a corporate greedy thing to do to tell me how to feel. Yeah, that is, I'm going to be with these feelings and I'm going to be honest about where I am with these feelings and I'm going to let them be there. So in that case, no, it wasn't OCD, but it's a part of this new way of life, this new values focused way of life. I get to live a life that I value. I get to go after and move towards things that I care about, including other people, including love, including joy, including appearing on podcasts and including (laughs) that I enjoy, including any sort of movements towards social justice and well-being i get to do those things and a part of that is feeling this sadness and this fear and this discomfort and this sense of helplessness and as long as i i carried my little one in like one of those little packs uh-huh you know three years uh-huh.
0: yeah 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 we know the it baby the carrier little. yeah
1: yeah yeah <laughs> we called it the pack you know? uh-huh. Till she was three you know like that was how we we went about the world and she's fiercely independent right now you know She's done with me. <laughs> but you just take your sadness, your fears, your deepest fears, your shame, your deepest, darkest shame, and your deepest, darkest nightmares. And you put them in the baby carrier. You put them in the pack. And you wear them because they're yours. And they're a part of you. And You don't need to take your hands and your attention and do things, do anything about them. They're just You're just carrying them along with you. Yeah. And so I can go to the moon. I can be an astronaut as long as I'm willing to take my crappy feelings with me. Okay, good deal.
0: Yeah. Well, and to realize that that doesn't have to limit you. I think sometimes having that heaviness and that angst, it's like, well, I shouldn't. I need to get rid of that somehow. And really, it, what's ironic is what I think the family and chosen family and loved ones go through is a very parallel process. To what the OCD sufferer goes through. I have this urge to try and fix this thing. And it's really hard because I feel out of control and so distressed about what's happening right now that I want to be able to fix it. And that is, I mean, is that not OCD in your brain going, hey, you better do this because this doesn't feel good. This could be bad, blah, 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 blah. Right. And there's a lot of noise about that. But that noise doesn't just stay with the person, that noise. Everybody feels that noise, which is why it's so important. It's such a strength and it can be also such a hard space where we go, okay, so the family has a giant impact. It's not your responsibility to make this person better. It's not your responsibility to make bad feelings go away. But also we just see because OCD really impacts how the OCD warrior experiences their world, their environment, their family, their relationships. It does affect you. It affects me. It affects the family system. And so when you were talking about the SUD score earlier, so just for new fam, subjective unit, the distress just isn't <laughs> sexy, is it? It doesn't have that same sound, but SUDs, thick bubbles. Yeah, we're, we're good with that. If we have a SUD score from, say, one to 10, one being best day 10 being like living hell and terror and all this stuff. Where are we on that thermometer if we're trying to gauge like how intense this is, right? And it's going to be subjective based on like how I experience an aid is going to be different. How you experience an aid is going to be different than how my partner or my kids or whatnot experience an aid. But you were talking about leaving room for those big feelings. And so A, it's hard to have your loved one. Let's take the child example have these really big feelings, this high SUD score. Maybe they're at an eight, maybe they're at a 10, maybe they're at a 12. You're like, 12 didn't exist. And you're like, you had to be there, it did. <laughs> right? It, it definitely existed. So that person is having their big feelings. And then you're also having a high SUD score as a family member going, oh my gosh, this is so uncomfortable. Then I'm not going to just open the door, even though I know this whole tantrum would stop or at the store, I just buy them the whatever candy that would stop in this moment. Like sometimes we got to choose our battles, right? Like how do we deal with those big feelings when you as the support person are like, I can't because my score at this point is so high. And that's the process again that the OCD sufferers learning. But what would you say to family members who are having that high SUD score and having to learn to sit within their own discomfort? And maybe because children and so can spouses and partners can really kind of mouth back and go like you. If you love me, you do this for me. If you love me, you would do this. Why do you hate me? You're doing this. And that is. An added layer of like, this sud is being weaponized. <laughs> These big oh feelings God. are weaponized towards me. So how do we
1: sit with those big feelings? What would you say to them? What I have seen, well, let me say it this way. Therapy is about change. We're here in therapy or however you get help. You know, the goal is to change things. Yes. And so when you start that process of recognizing, oh, there's something here that's not working. One of the more threatening things about it is on, on some level, I think that's what denial is all about. We kind of know that we're going to have to change. We, I personally, am going to have to change. This family is going to have to change. This relationship is going to have to change. And for the most part, we're pretty much groomed. and some of it's natural, some of it's social and conditioned, to really fear change. Oh, and I so, was going to say, change is so hard. They're like, I don't want change. <laughs> I mean, I want this this distress to go mm-hmm. away, but I don't want the change. Yeah, but if the change was going to be, here's the lottery, you won. Everybody, at least I'll take some of that. Right, right. Exactly. So it's it's our assumption that this change is going to be hurtful or bad and make us give up these things that we are enjoying, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I'll say that much of the time people bring their loved one in or enforce them to go or whatever it is. So that that person can be fixed, but helping support people to see. So listeners, I want to invite you guys to open yourselves up to change, even if you're not the one with OCD, even if you like, but I'm just fine doing this thing. It doesn't cause me a problem. It's about looking within and thinking differently about how you expected or assumed a family or a relationship would go, how you expected or assumed, or, or even if there are beautiful, beautiful cultural practices that you really hoped to be able to do and pass on and and do just like your grandmother or your grandfather did. ERP asks you to do things differently and doing things differently asks you to reassess your core values and your core beliefs. And that's one of the scariest things.
0: I was going to say that is so scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So I mentioned earlier about the child, let's say, we need to do an exposure, let the child's room stay messy because that's a part of it. Put all the dirty clothes on your bed because we need to sit with that fear of contamination and things like that. Now the parents have beliefs about how clean a house should be and that they negatively reflecting on them that the house is as messy as it is. So not only do I just want to pick up these clothes and clean it and just let this child have this space because she's screaming and telling me that I that we hate her and all these things. So I want that to go away. And also, I don't want to keep a dirty house. That's not who I am. Right. In that moment, that discomfort that you're talking about, yes, of the child screaming, that's a problem to them in that moment. But also it's the discomfort with what does it mean to be a parent whose child is screaming? Because previously I understood that that meant that was a bad parent. Right. So now we're going to challenge that concept. Is a good parent a parent that always has their child under control? Or is a good parent someone that doesn't exist? Uh, it doesn't. I mean, a good parent, but whatever.
0: I get what you're saying, but I was just like, <laughs> oh, before you have kids, you're like, yeah, I'll be one of those good parents.
1: But The idea here is we're building in this cognitive flexibility around things that probably people haven't pushed back against as much as they need to. So redefining the definition of love. Changing your definition of a, of a clean house. Changing your definition of a happy kid happy kid is the one crying in the corner because of ERP and OCD and I'm not accommodating. But overall, this is going to be a, a much more well child that I'm taking care of. So it asks us to really dig deep and reconsider things and ask us, what do I really value here? Is it more valuable that this child listen to me in this moment? Or is it more valuable that my child be well and healthy? Yeah. So for the loved ones, I think that, you know, a really important part of therapy is having those family meetings. And helping people to prepare for the internal analysis and self-reflection that's going to have to take place. And that they're going to feel uncomfortable because of that. And to give them support to, again, check their bubbles levels. I've got a ton of little bubbles. It's like a ton. Or just little bubbles. Okay, I think I'm okay with this. I think I'm okay with letting go of my child being perfectly on time to everything. Because that's a part of their OCD. And I'm willing to let it go.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really like how you touched on it in talking about how this really comes down to our core beliefs and expectations, which I will say expectations are a bit of a trap anyway, right? Because often we don't even, sometimes we have expectations we're not even aware of. But -hmm. then we also have expectations that are going to be present day defined by what society is going to speak to what the expectation is. You're going to have within your own family what the expectation is. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is, you were talking about the importance of what does well and healthy look like. I can think of even within my own family, I can think and, and just as we expand out to different generations of my own family, what looks like well and healthy for the OCD child or the OCD sufferer it could be the parent, the spouse might look like spoiled little brat who doesn't know how to respect people mm-hmm. from another person's vantage point and expectation. And part of that, whether you like it or not, is informing your core belief system, right? Because that's how you grew up or whatever the circumstances are. And so you could then go, okay, well, even if I believe differently, I do have some shame and fear around this. And then I have my peanut gallery, my family going, when you were a kid, we just taught kids to mind us and and we knew what the meaning of respect was. Uh, we ate whatever was before us. We don't go into all of this, oh, yeah, I do you know, because then that's seen as an accommodation, right? What? So you can battle with, okay, here's what OCD defines as accommodation, actually engaging in these compulsions, right, or helping maintain and gatekeeping this environment where OCD is thriving versus the family being like, actually, you're accommodating it. That kid is wild. You're not doing your job at all.
1: And mm-hmm. so you're
0: dealing with it You sometimes from both sides, right? And so that good, good. that's going to raise your bubbles. It'll raise your sets.
1: <laughs> you're dealing with it from both sides and on the inside, as complex as we are internally, which is why coming back to this kind of broader sense of this does not feel good. And if we want to, I guess the parallel of like engaging the obsession would be this here and trying to figure, okay, well the therapist says this and then my family says this and I'm saying this and and trying to come up with the perfect answer for everybody and everything, letting that go. I may never, maybe I'm doing this all or Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll never get it right. And feeling the tension that comes with that mm-hmm. and practice riding that out as it comes up the many, many times that that's going to come up in different forms. And if your relationship with I'm not pleasing everybody becomes, well, it is what it is and this is a part of life. I'm never going to
0: please everybody, but at least I can sit with the distress of not needing to do something with that other than just be me.
1: Exactly. I can sit at and if your child or your loved one sees you sitting with that, they're going to see a beautiful example of this healthy self-love. And this resistance of safety seeking behaviors, this resistance of engaging with the obsession with compulsions, and it will help model that for them and hopefully help them on their journey, too. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And another thing I was just thinking as you were sharing that and and just thinking about this dynamic within the family, too, was that even this idea of health, what, what do we mean by health? And what is mental health or even physical health, right? You know, and like in some ways, we're like, oh, yeah, we can give you a textbook. We can give you a dictionary definition. But let me give some context. So growing up, my dad was never sick, ever. And that would be, from my recollection, a true statement. But in reality, was he ever sick? I'm sure he was. It would probably be like impossible for him to have lived so much of time in life without <laughs> being sick, right? And so it's like now he is a cancer survivor. He's got so many different compounding health battles that he's dealing with. Was he never sick and now all of a sudden he is? No. But the notion of health, whether we like it or not, has captured him and it affects him. It affects our whole family, right? And so we think about that in terms of what's health, but also mental health. So I grew up and I lived, I was telling Sarah how I lived in L.A. for like 14 years, right? I grew up, though, in the Midwest. I grew up in Bible Belt. And when I went off to school for grad school to become a therapist, that was pretty radical. Because what is mental health and why are you not writing that with God kind of thing? And so that was the community I grew up in. I went to the West Coast where it could not be more different. And it was just not like that value system wasn't defined that way. And so even moving out, talk about acculturation, I had to, I'm like, here, I've grown up in the States and this is a different experience living in Los Angeles, right? I had to decide, why do I believe what I believe? How am I going to construct this idea? But also going into a mental health field where I don't feel like that has to be in conflict with spiritual health. There were plenty of people that could tell me back from home that were like, but it is, right? And so I am not sitting here to even make it into a mental health versus spiritual health debate. What I do know, though, and especially when it comes to OCD, and we've talked about here at the podcast about scrupulosity and whatnot, about how our understanding of moral goodness or even our understanding of a faith-based relationship can get hijacked by OCD and, and be regarded as this is a morality problem, this is a spiritual health problem. And so we have these different cultures where we go. Okay, whether we're looking at religious, whether we're looking at ethnic culture, whether we're looking at differences in tradition or Westernized culture versus more Eastern culture, we start to understand what constructs my core belief or beliefs Mm. is very, very complicated and has lots of different layers to it. Right. And so, for some individuals, and I would say even growing up, like mental health wasn't something you talk about. Everybody had it, but it wasn't something that was really talked about, even physical health, right? My dad was never sick. Amazing, <laughs> right? And so when we start to think about this then within the family or the chosen family system, and we look at how cultural and religious and familial traditions really do impact not only how we experience content within OCD, obsessions and compulsions, but also how we experience what is mental health and what does it mean to get help? Because for a lot of families, you need to pray that out or you need to keep it in the family. Or if you go say that shit on the street, it is going to end up putting a target on your back. So you talk about it. We deal with shit here or we don't deal with it. You either get over it or not. We can't get over mental health, right? It's just a part of who we are. And it doesn't define all of who we are, but it's a part of who we are. So how do we deal with that? And I know it's going to look a myriad of ways, but what does it look like to even embrace and understand what does mental health mean in my family?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd like to solve that for everybody right now. Yeah. Oh, she has that solved? I'm here for it. (laughs) When it comes to scrupulosity, when it comes to, in particular, obsessions that have hijacked a deeply beautiful, deeply held belief, you know, about love, about safety, about religion, about the world, you know. What I have found consistently is that when people come into treatment, that is sometimes one of the first times they've grappled with these things out loud. Out loud, yeah. Much of the time, we are all grappling with similar things. And if you think you're the only one thinking that because whatever you did, that now God hates you and God's got it out specifically for you, probably a lot of people in your own family, in your own neighborhood, your community, your own church, think that same thing. Mm -hmm. But I think starting with this idea that these Fears and this worry about fitting in, about judgment, about being good enough. These are universal human concerns. Earlier, you were mentioning fear about driving and -hmm. this worry that, oh, did I hit somebody? Let me go back. Let me back up all these things. And since that's like kind of more external, we can point to it. It seems easier to grapple with. But fundamentally, we're talking about this fear of death that is universal. We can boil it down to this fear of rejection, which is universal And in many ways, like that fear of rejection is also in some way about a fear of death because if the entire clan rejects you, how are you going to live? How are you going to be okay? Are you You going to survive? Yeah, that you're going to survive. So I think starting out with recognizing the universality of these things can help reduce the shame around them. When I was a kid going to church and getting intrusive images of naked Jesus, oh my God, if I had known what that was, if I had known I could get help for that, man, my life would have been different. Oh my gosh, you know, and thinking that Oh, now I'm going to hell, certainly, certainly. And only God knows I'm having these images. And God's the one mad at me, in my view, for this thing. And now I'm condemned. And I can't even ask my parents for help because I can't say naked Jesus out loud. Can't say penis to my dad. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) These are things that I'm not supposed to be thinking about. Well, why would I think about them at all if it wasn't that I'm listening to the devil's voice and not not the Lord's voice? It gets really, really isolating. Yeah, I think horribly isolating. But I don't think any of us is alone in having these feelings of isolation around culture and belief and religion and things like that. So I would like to have people to walk away with the feeling that these concerns are universal. Yeah, and if your loved one is dealing with OCD and they've not expressed some of these things, just don't even, you don't have to dig, but just know that like almost anything is coming up in their mind, just like almost anything comes up in your mind. Yeah. And let's accept the human universality of those things. And so sitting with them isn't about necessarily saying that this belief system is right or wrong or anything. That has nothing to do with that. It has to do with sitting with human fear. Mm-hmm. And fear is a part of the human experience. And we're getting accustomed to the fear system. This has nothing to do with making judgments or values or statements of belief or disbelief about any belief system at all.
0: Yeah. And human feared amplified by imagination, too. Because if you think about it, I've said this before in the podcast, but I say it to clients all the time. So any of my clients that might be listening will be like, yep, she does. She says that a lot. (laughs) People will come out. I use this analogy because I just think in analogies. However many years ago, maybe 100 years, or years ago, maybe even longer, there's people that would come out of their house or they come out of their dwelling and they look up and there was this thing in the sky. It was bright and shines. What? Sometimes it was a whole circle. Sometimes it was just a slice of the pie, right? But they would see that and they're like, you know what? Someday going to build something. We're going to create something. We're going to go there. Not only are we going to go there, we're going to take a walk. We're going to do things, right? That must have been so crazy sounding and radical, right? That we would look at something off in the sky without even understanding how far it really is even away. That and all the Mm -hmm. other stars and all the things, right? And they're like, make something that would do that. That came and was born out of the imagination of what could be possible, right? And so our imagination, the same one that built a rocket ship that flew to the moon, people live up there, the International Space Station, let alone you can take a walk, satellites, all the things, all the amazing things that we've been able to build and create. That's the power of imagination, right? So you apply that imagination to naked Jesus. You apply that imagination to what if I didn't get these things straight and that could lead to something bad happening to somebody I love or care about? You imagine that as a parent and your soft, little, amazing baby that you're sitting there and you can imagine what if I accidentally broke their neck? That imagination that fueled us to the moon, can you imagine how? And then everyone here listening is like, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> it's kind, yeah. of, like, it's kind <laughs> of a problem, right? But but that's some pretty dark, scary, intense fear. And so does it make sense that you decided to avoid this thing or try to minimize, neutralize or get away from that? Absolutely. And so going, hey, well, that makes sense. Here's the good news. As hard as that is, it's in the imagination. And just because yeah. you have a thought, we have something like six, seven thousand thoughts a day. They're not all going to be winners, people. And that's OK. Being able to embrace and go, yeah, just just because I have a thought doesn't mean I might secretly be this monster that's capable of doing something that would bring harm or that is being taken over by the devil or any of this stuff. It was a thought. It -hmm. doesn't feel good. And I can go
1: live my life anyway. Amazing. I wanted to add something to that. Yeah. Remember that you are just one of over seven billion human beings on this earth and they all have a brain and they all have thoughts. And if every single one of us, all 7 billion of us, if all of our thoughts had the power, all of our scary thoughts had the power to come true, we'd be living in an even more chaotic world. Oh, we'd yeah. Be. We'd be done. We'd be done. But instead, we got some bad. We got some good. We're we're still out here being humans. We're We're doing what we can. And I think remembering that you are not alone. You are not the only person with a brain who has thoughts that are doing with whatever it is they want to do. I think like 80% of thoughts based on, I don't know the research exactly, but like 80% of them are negative. 80% of them are repetitive. Like it's because a person with my own anxious thoughts, it's the same thoughts since I was like 11. I'm sure they've changed a little bit here or there, but it's pretty much the same ones. I just go, hey girl, come on in. I know you. (laughs) I sometimes tell my clients like name that part of them. My favorite name so far is Barry. Barry. (laughs) Barry's like, he lives in an old movie theater. Uh Uh-huh. And he. Like a top hat on, he's like this cartoonish, like like pale figure, and he's really angry. And he's just all day long. He's just playing this old phonograph of like, "You're not good enough. You're a bad person. You're this," and he that's just what he does, you know. And he likes it. This is what he does, you know. Mm-hmm. And Barry is your friend. Barry lives inside of you. <laughs> yeah, as much as I've tried to excise that part of it, it's not going to happen. We cannot excise Barry. Barry just is part of you. And the more we can go, oh, that's just Barry. Yeah, we don't have to just, mind Barry. Barry's going to be a curmudgeon over there. I do this thing. And like sometimes, yeah, I admit some of the stuff he says. I go, oh my gosh, what? What can happen? What do I need? But I remember that I don't need to do anything about Barry. Let him have his life, his world. He's a part of the family. Serve him a plate. Feed this man. We love him. But we don't listen to him. Right. <laughs> Let him enjoy all his old horror films in peace. That's all. It's the acceptance that you are a member of humanity, that we all live these things. And even though the thoughts want to trick you into thinking that you're alone and it's just you, I was thinking about Naked Jesus, not intentionally intrusive thoughts. You share your experiences. Many, many guests on your podcast I'm sure have. Take away that we are all in this together separately.
0: (laughs) We're all in this together. Yes. Yes. And we're better together because when we can normalize the berries and we can normalize the thoughts and we can normalize that process. It's so funny because as we learn more within OCD, because content is what captivates us as lived experience people, right? Because it's so intrusive and uh, And so it's what trips us up, but it's that process. It's that process that we learn how to treat, whether we're using ERP or we're using ICBT, we're learning about the process and it's not even about the content, right? Like, Barry's going to talk his run his mouth over there. Okay, that's Barry. Right? We're not going to change Barry. Uh, <laughs> our brain is our brain, right? But at the same time, at the same time, it doesn't mean that this defines you and when we can learn how to live in a neighborhood together and that's what we're doing when we're learning to live with if it's erp or icbt when we're starting to embrace that as a way of life like you were talking about earlier then that content really fizzles down yes barry's still over there running his mouth and every now and then you're gonna be like but that's different because what we've learned is how to live in this neighborhood and coexist together right and and be okay with that right Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, if only we could just learn how to live together in the neighborhood. Like, this is a problem that we have not just in our mind. Like, this is a cultural problem that we have of how do we love, embrace, live. We don't have to agree with any of the shit Barry says. We don't have to agree with each other. I don't have to agree with my actual neighbor, right? They might be like, noise isn't loud. I'm like, it's loud, actually. And we don't have to agree on things, but we have to learn how to live in the neighborhood together. And so that's really what the process is. It's one of those things where really, if we then amplify it on a broader scale, we can see why OCD is that superpower where we get to go like, if I can learn to live in this neighborhood, then I can live anywhere.
1: Absolutely. It
0: doesn't mean you have to like it. Y'all don't like it. I don't like it. As lived experience warriors, I think we're both very much on the same page, right? Of Yeah, we don't like it. OCD is not fun. But living, sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. But living that life that we actually get to engage in life and it's not limited by the berries in the neighborhood, Mm. that's a beautiful Mm -hmm. thing.
1: Mm -hmm. And if you could ignore berry, right, like you said, then we also have other things that are not exclusively OCD. They're not these deep intrusive thoughts. But instead, it's someone's expressing doubt that I can do something. Well, if I can live with my own internal horror movie, then if you cut me off on the 405 freeway, which will definitely
0: happen if you've ever run on the
1: 405 LA, yes. If you, if, if we're in the middle of traffic, I've been waiting in this line and you just cut in, I'm just going to turn my audio book up and continue to enjoy myself and learn about things I care about. It's about being able to snatch your value system, your well-being, the love for the person that you are with, the love for your family, love for humanity, being able to continue to move towards that, not in a way that Barry dictates, but in a way that's more free. So ultimately, we worry that if we don't listen to Barry, then we're going to like lose touch with these things that are really important. And only Barry can tell us how to do them. Only OCD can tell me how to keep my dad alive. Only OCD can tell me how to make sure no one's ever going to be mean to me and make sure I go to heaven. It feels like I'm going to lose all of these things. But in reality, when I let go of that, then I have the time and space and energy to actually. Be the kind of person I want to be with Barry with the feelings, yeah, and do and be and have all of these things that I was trying to get by listening to the intrusive thoughts that your loved one that you are trying to get by listening to intrusive thoughts, yeah. So it's, it's taking it, like you said, from that bubble and from that isolation and from it's just me, and I've got to listen to this one person tell me how to do it to going to that place of open curiosity and exploration, and that is still terrifying. Mm -hmm. But if you can sit with your own internal horror movie, then you can sit with the uncertainty about, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but I'm going to try. I don't know if this person's going to take my invitation out on a date, but I'm going to try because I get to try and I get to live life.
0: You get to live. Oh, yeah. To live would be an awfully big adventure, huh? Yeah, it's a Peter Pan quote, but isn't it true? It's like, that's actually living. OCD makes the world smaller and smaller and smaller and more isolated, and this is probably a you problem, and and people won't understand. And you know what? With certain things, like you're saying, with Naked Jesus, with certain obsessions and compulsions, and it's not to rate them. They all suck, frankly, right? You know, so they, they suck. Ask anybody who has one of the quote-unquote milder ones, they're like, no, this this shit's ruining my life, right? But there is a different response. If you were to go out, like when you have a baby that here in the States, especially there's like a million well-child appointments, and then God forbid anything like the feeding and latching from breastfeeding process or the formula, maybe of some kind of an allergy or sensitivity, and they're not getting the weight they should, then you have even more appointments, right? So if you have this Intrusive thought about what if I could accidentally like break my kid, snap mm. their neck, hurt them somehow, and I wouldn't want to. And then you go to a million appointments, and they're like, "How are you feeling?" and "How they're doing?" And, and we're experiencing these problems, and you say that that's not always treated well, right? So you have some grounded fear that if I, I go, go out, out and tell the doctor, yeah. "Yeah, I'm afraid I could snap my kid's neck," that would be the worst possible thing ever. You agree, but they're like, "Okay." Minute, child protective services is on speed dial. Got the social worker coming down to talk to you right now. Right, Right. and then that further stigmatizes the. Oh yeah, something is really seriously wrong with me. So people don't say that stuff out loud. They don't say naked Jesus out loud. They don't.
1: But I I just want to note also that that outcome is much more likely for new immigrants, for people who are not English speakers, for people of color, for Black people. That fear is incredibly valid, and it's even more heightened that you're going to share something vulnerable and that's going to be weaponized against you. It happens often enough. And so for the listeners who are in those communities or if you love someone or in community with someone who's affected by those systems, just remember too that if you're not ready to share, if you're not ready to say these things out loud, if you don't think that you can go to your doctor or go and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Look, there is no shame in that either because you're just trying to stay safe. hmm I would say it's important to, first of all, as therapists, as community members, as loved ones, that we do the work to know how to love on the person in our lives, that we do the work to know how to be good listeners, that we do the work to reduce our own desire to jump to conclusion and label. As a broader human community, we still have a lot of work to do to stop stigmatizing and labeling and shaming and blaming people for suffering from things that we all, I don't know, for the most part might be candidates for. But if you're listening and you're not ready, there is no shame or shade in that at all.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such an important point. And you're right. Whether we like to admit it or not, fam, it's not an equal playing field when we consider some of the privileges that we have. And it's just it's such an important point, because also when we think about like real event OCD, we haven't talked about real event OCD a ton, but like when we look at things where we're like, yeah, I could have health OCD and have cancer, those intertwine. I could have this really scary, intrusive thought. And also, I could be dealing with systematic ways that I viewed as a man or a woman or any gender. There's so many different pieces to that. And that news isn't going to be received the same. My dad walking in saying I have this fear that I might have hit somebody with a car is not going to be the same response or regard as your dad walking in and saying, I'm afraid I hit somebody with a car. Right. We have Uh to acknowledge that. And in terms of then creating safety and understanding, like, hey, there is some real Event fear that is fueling this because we are dealing with some intergenerational systemic problems and lack of trust for good reason. We can look at a lot of different ways that people were used and abused for the sake of research, for the sake of learning about syphilis, all that. It's just like, oh my gosh, there's going to be a history for all of us. And Mm -hmm. recognizing that sometimes it's not safe, where do we find that safety? How do we? Deal because I think the fear for those CD sufferers certainly was for me before it was diagnosis. This was a me, part, right? You yeah. know. So how do we provide safe access if there is if you are an immigrant maybe coming in and going? Oh my gosh! If I have a fear that what if I could stab my wife now I'm going to jail, right? Or domestic mm-hmm. violence cases being heard, my kids are being taken out of my home. That's how do we deal with that in terms of accessing safe spaces for mental health?
1: Well, I say that this is a you and me problem. Yeah. This is a, for us to have these conversations, just like we did before the meeting. Sit and listen to each other and begin the process of changing how we practice and letting that be impacted by new voices, by different voices. I think on the listener side of things, on the suffer, on people who are not mental health providers, I think that going with seeking support for yourself, that feels right. You know, even if that is in the church, if that is community, Leaders that your family, human beings that feel physically safe to be around and finding other ways of validating who you are, different ways of loving yourself. Even if right now OCD can't be put at the forefront and you can't seek OCD treatment at this time, finding other ways to connect with your humanity and your good enoughness so that when the time comes to seek help from a provider, you have the community support and the confidence to go in and say, hey, do you know about the Tuskegee Airmen experiment? And what are your thoughts on that? Right. Do you speak my first language? Because I'm more comfortable expressing emotions in my first language. Mm-hmm. Do you have someone else here who can help me? Being mm-hmm. able to assert that you deserve good treatment and don't let anybody tell you that you're being difficult. The moment somebody's like, oh, you're being difficult, just go somewhere else. Thank right. you for your time. Go somewhere else. You know, right now that care is also virtual, shop around and get loved ones who are safer and who support you. Get them to help you shop around until you find somebody that feels safer for you to be around. You ask yourself questions. You make sure they understand what is your knowledge of immigrant experiences and the impact of levels of acculturation, whatever it is. Can you really are you going to listen to me? I'm a 19 year old black woman who's a recent immigrant from Panama. Are you going to listen to me? Once you have that safety established, then little by little begin to share and you can do that process. Now, going back to us on the provider end, there's so much work to do to change how we have conversations, how we do assessments, even how we do our intake process can be off putting for some people and building in that flexibility and that cultural, not one broad culture, right? But this this awareness and this humility that this thing is going to look different for different people rather than having this rigid lens of what we're looking for, sitting back and listening, what is the process here? You know, what is the impact on this person? And using our broader assessment skills. There was a couple of clients I worked with who are African-American who happened to have racial identity OCD. And that wasn't a part of training. I didn't know that that could be a thing. But -hmm. listening to process these intrusive thoughts about not being Black enough or being too Black or these things like that, you know, And these are legitimate, valid concerns in terms of navigating society. So there's nothing, there's nothing fundamentally pathological about those thoughts. Right. It's that knowing how to then check for, well, then what are you doing about that? And then you're finding the compulsive behaviors and you're finding that OCD cycle. Ah, now I can treat the OCD cycle and also still validate that core concern and finding ways to identify with your values around that And very surgically moving towards your values around that without engaging in the safety-seeking compulsions. Yeah. It can get really complex, especially when there's not research around these things. You know, people who have very beautiful beliefs about like different ways of taking care of babies and that this is how you're supposed to do it to show love. And OCD attaches to that. And needing to, just like we mentioned earlier with religion and scrupulosity, needing to validate and be very respectful towards, very careful towards this cultural practice and still removing the compulsive nature of it without making this person feel like they have to give up this cultural practice. That person's going to head for the door. That person's not going to let us treat them. Yeah. So we have to just be very, very, very careful. I call therapy brain surgery without the scalpel. <laughs> we have to be super careful in how we treat people. So it's, it's on us to perpetually just expand our sources of mental health knowledge for communities of color and new immigrants and LGBTQ people, it's not always going to be in that book. It almost never is in the standard manual. Right. We're going to have to listen to other conversations and and tune into other sociological discussions, legal discussions, even other ways that people are talking about or engaging with these communities as sources of additional information that can change the ways that we practice. So we have to be renaissance people. Right.
0: Yeah, I think it really comes down to, like you said, you and me, and we have to, like us, fam, all of us, having and sitting down and risking vulnerability. I I have a lot of these conversations. I don't always get it right, and I'm still learning. And so I could sit there and be like, I don't want to have a conversation because I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to accidentally offend somebody. I have, in ICBT terms, a vulnerable self theme in my OCD about what if I neglected some detail and that leads to dot, 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 right? And so for me, it's like I want everybody to feel like they have a seat at the table, but I also don't want to minimize or come in and pretend or be like in white savior mode or anything like that. I just want to be able to sit down and have a a conversation. And sometimes I'm going to mess up. What are we talking about? diversity or whether we're just talking about parenting a therapist yes and i'm still gonna mess up right us therapists we're not perfect we got issues and it's always a process of can I come with humility and go, even if I totally put my foot in my mouth, can I be open and have an open stance to understanding why that was me putting my foot in my mouth? Hindsight is usually twenty-twenty, so we can get to a point where we go like, oh, okay, oh, dumb. And we can get that shame and get down on ourselves. And what if I put myself out there and I say it wrong? I'm really not trying to have it wrong. But also your silence, our silence, also communicates that this isn't worth having a conversation about. This silence can communicate that it doesn't matter, that we're good. We've come so far. Your feelings don't matter. And you know what? All our feelings matter. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be happy. No one's ever going to fully be happy with where things are at. There's always going to be room for growth. It could always be worse. It could always be better. But at the same time, that doesn't mean... We can't have these conversations. And it starts with just being able to sit here and vulnerably have this conversation. And so I also recognize me having a conversation and what perceived or, or maybe not even really perceived because I can't know how I'm coming off on this. But the Internet's pretty good at (laughs) providing (laughs) feedback, whether it's solicited or not. Right. But I recognize even in having this conversation that for me and for you coming to this table, Saran and and having this conversation, again, there's a privilege for me to be like, sure, we could talk about this. Right. We should talk about this. And if anything, fam, I just hope that we can walk away today going. OCD doesn't discriminate. and We don't need to discriminate either. And that doesn't mean we're going to fully understand each other's experience. It doesn't mean we fully understand even our own experience. That's a, It's a process. We are a work in progress. We all are. And I don't want to think that this is me peaking. Ooh, if this is me peaking, I hope there's room for growth. Like, we all
1: need room for growth. There's always more that we can learn. One piece I want to add to that. I only have my own lived experience. Like, fundamentally, everybody... Who comes in is going to have a different lived experience than me because i'm not them and we're going to add additional pieces about where they immigrated from and what their identity is and what their sexual orientation is and what their even if they're also a black person what's their black experience like there's always going to be these differences but if i could sit there and my foot goes in my mouth and they correct me and they watch me sit with my own discomfort sit with the recognition that oh man i've made a mistake And not try to fix their image of me immediately and and clean it up and just go, wow, I really did not know that. Yeah. How are you going about that? And just sit in it. That's why it becomes a superpower. So, whether or not we agree, whether or not we fully understand, as therapists, we have the ability to sit there and model the thing that we're trying to get them to learn in treating their OCD. Yeah. And I like, like, it's okay if, you know, no one person is supposed to save everybody. I need to be very willing to say, recent Russian immigrant. There are cultural considerations here that I don't really know a lot about. And so I probably can get you this far if you wanna get started now, but at the same time, we're gonna start looking together for people who understand that Russian immigrant experience. So I'm not gonna leave you hanging, but we're gonna be intentional at at getting you to a better level of care that's gonna take you further. So being okay with thinking of yourself as a community partner on behalf of this person as a social worker, it's resource brokering, right? Yeah. It's being okay that you're not going to know and I'm not going to know and comfortably moving people through the process of getting them to where they got to be. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful.
0: Well, you know what, fam? This has been such a great conversation. I so appreciate you coming today, Saran. Hanging with the fam here. I love this. And you have a presence on social media as well as you have your practice information. So you definitely, you yeah. know how it goes here, fam. If you check out this episode's blog, I'm going to have all this information. You can find more information about Sarah on Instagram as well as you're at soul spa, Psychotherapy.com. So I, I know when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm like washing, cleaning, exercising, running, almost falling asleep. If you're like, "Oh, I want to write this down, but uh, I don't know where to, to write it down." Then go to the blog post and see this information. But also, I think that's also a really great way to normalize and not feel alone when we can go and look at social media. We can see some of the powerful influencers that really provide some representation. And it's not great representation in terms of, "Oh, I don't necessarily always see people that look like me unless I am white or I am westernized." And so I always love to see the dynamic work that's coming about where you can find more influencers and therapists, people with lived experience going, no, actually this affects everyone. So I know that you're providing that presence online. OCD Set Free is providing some of that presence online as well to go like, no, this isn't just for one kind of person that fits one kind of box. There's a lot within the autistic community. There's a lot within the LGBTQIA plus community. And so I would encourage folks, too, to look to social media, too, and find some influencers that can normalize, oh, my gosh, you've had a naked Jesus. Well, maybe mine wasn't naked Jesus, or maybe it was. But I did have this thought, and what if the devil, or I've had this question about my orientation, my culture, my racial identity. And so being able to hear that and see that, and whether you decide to like it or not, you go, wow, somebody else gets it. That's powerful. So thank you so much for your time today,
1: Sarah. Thank you. It was really nice talking to you. It was really nice. And this is really fun. It was nice meeting the fam. And I just look forward to all the beautiful work that we are all in this together in our own brains separately. So like I look forward to all the different work and changes that we can all do from whatever our position is at this time.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Thank you for that. All righty. Oh, I just want to take another moment to thank Sarah for coming today and sharing with us. We are grateful for the great work and hope that she brings her clients, their families, and now our family too. So if you're interested in hearing more or seeking safety and therapy and trying to connect with a diverse array of clinicians, I'll just highlight again that NoCD is a great service, which has an ability to serve clients internationally as well. And we have international fam here. So check out NoCD if you're struggling to find a trained OCD therapist. And as Patrick McGrath mentioned during our season premiere, even if you look up NoCD and they don't provide therapy in your country, please feel free to reach out to them anyway. They are a massive resource bank, and usually they can still help you in some way get linked to some really important resources. Because, fam, you're not alone. Also, Soral has her own practice, Soul Spa Psychotherapy. So again, all this info will be linked over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com on this episode's blog. Definitely check her out. And also you can follow her on Instagram at soulspot underscore OCD underscore recovery. I love that. That's such a great handle. Because as I mentioned at the end of our chat together, social media and seeing some of the therapeutic and peer advocates out there producing content and reflecting that treatment and hope is available for all people of all colors. That is so important. So for any new fam that is joining us today, we are in the intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, and I want to challenge you with a simple application this week, okay? I'm going to encourage us all to sit down and create a picture of what the universality of hope, of being better together against OCD, what all that means, and I want you to create that picture, and I want you to include all the colors that you fancy. But also, I want you to make sure that you include the color black. I want us to celebrate what beauty and depth and color black brings to our creations. And if you're up for it, fam, I would love for you to share your picture with me. I would love to retweet it, add it to my story, post it. Or if you're like, I'll send it to you, but I don't necessarily want to show my art out there. I know people feel vulnerable when they create art, particularly as adults. But I would love to see it. And if you're okay with me sharing it, I would love to share it. Because in this family, we do see color. And we celebrate color. Because we are better together. And as Amanda Gorman writes in Call Us What We Carry, there is no better compass than compassion. Happy creating, fam. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD family podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. Find you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like spilling the tea on OCD in the family. That's right, I went there. And you can too, at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.